This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. I wake to a sense of sadness and dissatisfaction. I mean, one Yiddish word could go on a thousand errands. I was getting my lines ready for meeting my maker. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you like your wives and servants to read? Okay, here's a confession. Howard Jacobson had been on my radar for years. Uh, but I'd never actually got around to, you know, reading him. Uh, and then the Finkler question won the Booker Prize in 2010, so I got round to that one, and since then I've got round to lots of them, and he's now one of my absolutely favourite novelists. And I could not be happier to uh, be talking to him now. Howard, thank you for joining us on the book podcast. It's my pleasure, and I didn't know when I agreed that I was one of your favourite novelists. Shame I'm only one of, but I'll, t- <laughs> I'll take whatever you're offering. How about one of my very favourite living novelists? It's the one of the problem. <laughs> I knew that. Are you at all indignant that it took the booker to get me to read? Because you, you were one of those uh, people. I mean, I'm, a, I'm a magpie. I go, ooh, shiny, I'll read that. You're one of those people I've known f- about for years. And I thought, yeah, one day I'll... Why? Why had I not? Yes. Because I'm a magpie. There's no, there's no sort of, uh, there's no programme to it. And so then... I wasn't shiny enough for you, <clears throat> that's the thing. It's just... You, you couldn't have been on. shinier than me. <laughs> I, well, I now that I see, I know that now, and okay. that that's the point, okay. isn't it? Having read Finkler, which I absolutely adored, um, I, 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 I've read stacks since because every time I come across, I'm like, mm, yes, I'll have I'll have one of those. Well, so, as long as we've got you now, that's the main thing. We're talking about Mother's Boy, which is uh, it's your well memoir. It's not quite an autobiography, is it? it it's it's subtitled A Writer's Beginnings, so it's a what, what kind of book is it? Well, it's not a, it's, um, no, it's not an autobiography. It's, uh, it's one of those, one of those books where you could play fancy, fancy titles. Call it Musings. I kind of, I fancied something like Musings, but nobody I know said anybody would want to write a, buy a book that's called Musings by Howard Jacobson. So it's not, <laughs> it's, it, and it's more than musing. It is a story, it's, it's not the story of my life. But it's the story of my life viewed in a particular way. And that is, why is it that somebody who wanted to write for as long as I wanted to write, and I came into the world wanting to write, I never, ever, ever wanted to do anything else, ever. And I never admired anybody but writers. So why was I 40 before I wrote a book? Not quite true. I was 36 when I co-wrote a book about Shakespeare. You took some time. Coming From Behind wasn't published, which was your first novel, wasn't published until you were nearly 40. That's right. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, why? I mean, that is what the subject of, of this book, very much so. But why? If, if that was all you wanted to do, how come it took that long to get... You know, you must have thought that you'd missed the boat. The, oh, I the very much thought shot. I'd missed the boat. I thought I'd missed the boat when I didn't publish anything at 20 and then 25. And I had a, I had a nervous break, almost a nervous breakdown at 25 when I was coming back from a stint teaching in Australia and I was on the boat and I thought, well, that job has not given me anything. I enjoyed it, but it's not giving me anything I can do anything with. I knew I wasn't going to be able to get, because I didn't write academic works or anything. I just had a nice time. I was on the boat coming back to England. I was 25. I thought, it's my life is over and what have I got to show for it? Well, pick that up again in a minute. But 
Australia is is a, a, a bizarre one. You you went to Australia when <laughs> all the Australians were coming here. Your Clive Jameses and your Jermaine Greers and your made Barry Humphreys. I've made a television program about. <laughs> I've but, made a television program about my being on the boat to Australia on the Indian Ocean, and the, and I, and suddenly I hear waving from a boat on not far away, and on that boat is Barry Humphreys, Jermaine Greer, Clive James, Robert Hughes, and they're all saying, "You're going the wrong way, mate." <laughs> And I have made a TV program interviewing them all, all those that were, who were alive. So how did that come about, the, the, the Australian, or the first Australian I was offered a job. job. And you, I was you offered were in a job. need of a job? I'd, I'd, um, I'd, I was a young man. I was 22, just 22. I'd just got my degree, which wasn't very good. I'd just got married. I had to do something. I'm always running away from something because I'm never... I was always running away from something because I was never where I thought I wanted to be. Um, and Australia seemed a very good place to run to. It seemed like a rich adventure. I had a new young wife. Uh, we were keen on each other and we thought this would be a terrific adventure. And it was indeed a terrific adventure. For a boy from Manchester where it always rained and from Cambridge where it always snowed, <laughs> to go to a place where the sun always shone was bliss. So... Australia then, uh, you, you stayed for a while and you came back and then you went back to Australia on your own without the wife. Without the wife yes, the, well, we got divorced and um, a few years later I did, my second wife was Australian actually. So we then spent more time in Australia. Then my centre of operations moved from Sydney to Melbourne. And then a lot of travelling around, a lot of travelling around Australia and a lot of writing about Australia. Australia was, from my kind of, throughout my 20s and my 30s, a very, very important part of my life. And you very, did get at least one book out. I read Zoo Time was uh, set in Australia, wasn't it? Zoo Time was set in Australia. There was an earlier novel, um, Redback. I haven't read that one yet. My, I'm saving that one up. <laughs> my third, if you're going to skip a novel, skip Redback. Okay. It's... Um, that's my, is it my third? That was my third novel, and that was, that was set in Australia. And um, I've made a television film about Australia. I met my wife, my present, my third and final wife, while we were making a television programme about Australia. So Australia has figured deeply in my, in, my, in my work, and it's a place I dream about still. I don't know whether I've got the strength to catch a play in all that way anymore, but I often on sunny days kind of long for things Australian. A lot of my friends were Australian for many, many years, but they all lived too hard, drank too hard, did everything too hard and died. So if you make a lot of friends in Australia, you have to be prepared to lose a lot, lose a lot of them too. So I'm very sentimental about Australia, always sentimental. You are very brilliant about place as well. The, 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 the places in the books are so vivid. Uh, in Manchester, of course, which um, the, the novels set there, which is your, your youth, your, your childhood. Uh, and, and there's the Wolverhampton, which figures um, in, in coming from behind. Yes, yes. Um, but I want to take you back to Manchester a little bit. Um, what was that like? There are lots, most of what the notes I made while I was reading this were good quotations from you. But things things like, you know, you, you, you were born, you say to your mother that uh, you, you were born a Jew at a bad time to be a Jew. And she says, you were born in Cheshire in a nursing home, <laughs> thousands of miles away from She the never farm. let me get away with hyperbole, <laughs> although she was a hyperbolist herself. I learned it from her. She was a hugely exaggerating woman. If she rang me up, it would go, Howard, you've no idea what's gone on. My, my first thought was a bomb's been dropped on Manchester. Then I thought, no, probably my, <laughs> my sister's got a cold or something. You've 
no idea. Oh, it's in my that was a noise she made un, until she died a couple of years ago. At a good age, she made a good age, which was nobody thought she would. Oh, 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 it was a kind of endless calamity. It was very, we often think of that being a Jewish thing. That's too long, that's going to take too long to talk about why, what the connection is between Jews and calamity. But she did calamity fantastically well. My dad didn't do calamity. There was no calamity with my dad. Everything was a problem that you fixed and it was fine. And he laughed and life was for having a good time. And my mother's idea of life, life was a place for worrying your way through. And I'm mainly, it's called Mother's Boy, and I'm mainly my mother's boy with what was made problematic with another ambition to be my father. So life was very difficult, full of, full of care in my head, full of cares, and all along there was another voice in my head, which was my father's positivity, get out there and enjoy yourself. I was going to come to that because one one meaning of the term mother's boy is sissy, but that's not what this one means. You mean you were your mother's boy rather than your father's boy. Yes, it does mean that, but I also think I was a bit of a sissy. I was a bit of a sissy. Still, I'm a bit of a sissy. I was not, I'm not a physical man. Um, I'm not interested in physical things. I don't, I don't, didn't play. When I say I didn't play sports, I should add that I played table tennis not true, very, very yeah. seriously, but I was conscious while I was playing it that it wasn't quite a proper man's and you got a book out of that as well i got Wilson, a book out of that, that. Yeah. i did get a book out of that yes but in some would say my a lot of people love that book partly because not because they played table tennis but because it's a book about a childhood obsession mm -hmm. and, and everybody's had a childhood vivid. obsession it's it's so vivid the the the, the feel for for that obsession and and for the family which is um, <laughs> which is wild and very colorful Yes, that's, my, that's the first time I really had a go at writing about my family. The Mighty Watson was revelatory to me in a way, because I thought, why haven't you written this before? What, what am I, five, six books in? I've been a writer for eight to nine years, and only now do I come to write about the, most, the best story I've got to tell, which is the family that I come from, which I tell again in another form. In my, in my memoir, in, in Mother's Boy, and that world of, the world of markets, which was my father's world, which was vibrant and very, very funny, full of anecdotal treasures, really, and table tennis, which was terrific fun to write about, to, to write about table tennis, because it's such a weird, small thing to do. And the whole joke, the centre of that book, was that this boy dreams of being the world's greatest table tennis player, around whom women swarm, as they do around table tennis players, and upon whom riches that. are poured, <laughs> as they are on table on table tennis players. So this, so it's a mock heroic novel. This boy has the grandest dreams to achieve something with the smallest ball that you can, apart from a marble that you can possibly play with, and nobody watches it, and there's nobody there, and it's kind of. It's gym crack and it's provincial and everything that he wants to escape through table tennis is what table tennis is. The smallest kind of, the smallest game in town with no rewards. In a way, it's a metaphor for novel writing. I now realise wanting to be a great table tennis player and wanting to be a novel writer in an age, though I didn't know that at the time, but one would say it now, who reads novels? Who plays table tennis? Who reads novels? Well, of course you could become the 
greatest table tennis player in the world and you still wouldn't make uh, make the same money as a championship footballer exactly it, 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 but that, that's ditto a novelist and ditto a novelist quite a lot of mother's boy um it reads it could it could almost be outtakes from uh, from uh, the mighty waltzer from kaluki nights from from those uh, books that, that are set in the world you knew as a child and of course uh, they're very funny, and this is very funny. But you, you, you sort of in 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 this book, you present yourself as a, a melancholy child and a and a depressive man. Is that true? I mean, you're they're so passionate and lively and funny on the page. Only when you're here, <laughs> or others in your profession who try to coax something out of you. Oh, is that I am, right? <laughs> I am a melancholy man. I don't. Do, am I a depressive? I don't know. I don't think I'm a full-blown depressive. But I am a melancholy man. I find life. I wake to a sense of sadness and dissatisfaction. When things are going really well, I can dispel that quite soon. But the first, first waking feeling, the first waking feeling is, it's not uh, out I go to meet the world, brave new world, here I am. It's something's not, I have to awake to a sense of something not being right, something having been taken from disappointment, disappointment in myself. One of the strongest feelings I have had for many many years and will and will go to my grave with it is that i had many many opportunities uh, opportunities of um birth opportunities not that i was well, you went grandly born in many ways that would have been, should have been an open yes door. and i had and i had my parents encouraging all that and i was supposed to be a bright child so i was a bright child and my parents made sacrifices to give me things and i got starts i've had lots of starts and I feel I've never properly made the best of those. So that's a disappointment in the self. You've not properly made the best of what you were given, which disappoints you in yourself. And then you feel bad about those who gave you your opportunities. I talk in the book about not liking school and particularly not liking Cambridge. And then I have a scene in which, as it were, the ghost of my father really says, how dare you? Not have liked Cambridge. We worked very hard to get you at Cambridge. I've never met anybody who was taught by F.R. Leavis before. What was that like? I loved it. I loved it. I loved him. I thought he was terrific. I admired him. I still admired him. I thought he was the model of what a critic should be. That the, I mean, the close reading. Um, I loved the close reading. You look at a text and you look at a text and you absorb the text and you hear it. And, and then you walk around with that text in your head, which is what he did. He could speak the poems that he loved. I did that. Um, I also say in the book that years later I realised this was very much like a Jewish Talmudic education, which is, you read the book, you read the book. And inf I mean, the Talmud is an infinity of argument. It never ends. You never, the wonderful thing about Judaism and the scholarly side of Judaism, it, it's never sorted. It's not over. Our God's not over. That's not the last word. There's always another word. The Jews are in a perpetual discussion. Uh, or argument with with themselves, and that's what literary criticism is. It's a perpetual argument. Lewis was kind to us. There was a very warm look in his eye, although he was kind of strange and fear, very shy, which I liked because I was a shy boy. All the boys who studied under F. R. Lewis were shy. We were all shy. We were all shy. Small grammar school, working class grammar school, and clever, boy. all clever as well. Some cleverer than others, but we were all but we were all clever. Yeah, but driven by this by a passion a passion for literature and a passion for which i've always admired in Lewis, and i've never known why he's been castigated it for englishness 
I was fascinated by that. Because well, I wanted, I aspired to that Englishness. My mother, for all her great Jewishness, gave me Englishness, not in argument. She never said, this is what Englishness is or anything. She just loved English books. She loved reading, totally untaught, never went to school, never went to university, just picked up English poetry, 19th century English poetry, really. Read it, loved it, read it to me. So by the time I went to Cambridge, I'd already had a kind of a stern, critical F.R. Lewis of my own at home. I was kind of used to that. And, um, and I, learned, I learned from both my mother and F.R. Lewis to hear the music of, of English, of English poetry, the music of English sadness, the music of English uh, thought, the music of English rigour too. And people have often said, oh, Lewis is too insular. With any of that, you start from you start from a small thing and you get to a big thing. You start from a small place and you get to a big place. You don't get to read world literature by opening world literature. You start from here. You start reading Jane Austen and you start thinking about the Hampshire novel and then you move and then you move out from the particularism of Englishness, which was what Lewis was very good at and passed on to me. Do you not think maybe that uh, Levis became a bit of a casualty because the the, the, this, the particularly French but continental new theories uh, all came in and and uh, and his approach was 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 <laughs> was not the death of the author was it totally non-theoretic and he was right to be non-theoretic. Where's theory now? Mm -hmm. Theory is now it's a wa it's a waste ground. What are we do? The, the the glory of the English is that they are they are they listen to they listen to the French and they listen to the German, but we didn't in the 17th and 18th century. Yes, our, our poets travelled and, um, and, and, and read wildly, but we weren't going to have anything that wasn't that specifically, particularly English thing that was the thing that we did. And theory was not the thing that we did. There's not, I mean, we capitulated to the French for theory. That's not what we do. That's not how we talk about literature. When you read the very interesting critics, some of those French critics of that period, whose names I never remember because I don't want to remember them, but they're not describing anything that feels like English literature. They haven't got what English literature is. They've got some interesting questions about what reading is and what your relation philosophically as a writer is to the whole idea of reading. But, you know, they're not going to talk. They're not going to be able to tell you why George Eliot's good or why Jane Austen is good. And that was the thing I most cared about. Why are they good? I've got to be a, my job, I thought, and when I was a teacher, the only one thing I was good at, I was able to stand in front of a group of students and show them why Jane Austen was good because I had worked out for myself why Jane Austen was. That was the job. I didn't care about anything else. If they, uh, evaluation, we kind of called it, which sounded you know, as though we were ranking things. It wasn't. It was feeling we were in charge of our critical faculties, knowing why we liked. It wasn't enough to say we liked what did we like? Why did we like? What was the what was the um, experience of our reading worth? And how could we communicate it to somebody else? That's what he taught me, and that's what I think I best for a little while taught my students. Do you think that the uh, English particularity, though, uh, uh, and the Levisite canon might have interfered with with your development as a writer? Because essentially, it's when you discovered that you you could write about Jewishness. And you say in the book that there weren't the, the sort of English great Jewish novelists that, that you could look to and say, aha, yes, this is the thing you can do, which is, in a way, it's strange, although you've, you've sort of answered my next 
my next question or point, because there were Americans. There were, you know, Joseph Hellers and, and, and Philip Roths and, and, and Saul Mellows and, and Norman Mailers and, and, and the, but you weren't looking there. And I was too busy being Jewishness. English. I don't mind that now. That was fine. I got to the Americans at the right time. Mm -hmm. And if that means I didn't write a would-be American, you know, I wasn't a would-be Kerouac at the age of 23, well, the world hasn't lost much <laughs> by my not doing that, and I'm not sure that, that I did. I had to take my time to, to get there. It is the case that if you are taught by a very, very charismatic, persuasive teacher who can show you why great literature is great, what is the greatness of great literature, you will come to look at what you do and think it's pretty meagre. Uh, but it is, it is going to be pretty meagre. Would I have been any better to just do a bit of meagre stuff and make my way to something better, maybe? I don't know. It gave, did it give me an inferiority complex to know why Lawrence was so good, why Dickens was so good, why Tolstoy was so good? Yes, it probably did, but it meant that my models were of the very best. And what I aspired to do was to do something really terrific. You know, had, had, I, had I only been a Tolstoy, that would have been better. But I got a little closer to it, and certainly a little closer to Dickens than I might have got had I just been writing freely from the age of 15, whenever I felt like. How do you feel about people comparing you with Philip Roth? I find you very, very different writers, but of course, pe people are small-minded and they go, hmm, writing about Jewish people. Very, very... Yeah, I mean, Jews, Jews and um, a Jew, a man, and, and sex a bit. Uh, yeah. And, that, and they thought Philip Roth... What, but I made a joke, which, which you probably have encountered now. I made it at Hay on Wire Festival when someone asked that very question. And I said, oh, I'm so sick of the Philip Roth. I'm not like Philip I, Roth. I, I, I was I'm, afraid... I am, I am the Jewish Jane Austen. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Uh, by which I meant, hey, it's a good joke, because <laughs> a Jewish genocide is almost inconceivable. No. Yeah. Um, but what I really meant was that my, my roots are in English. I don't hear the Americans when I write. Uh, when I, who do I hear when I write? Well, I hear Shakespeare, obviously, and I hear Dr. Johnson, and I do hear Jane Austen, and I do hear her periods, I do hear her, her prose and her voice, I hear George Eliot. I don't hear those Americans. I just don't hear them. When I came to read them, um, and I came to read them because I was so often being compared to them. I thought, a bit of fun. Who, who is this? I didn't know. When I wrote mm -hmm. my first novel, I hadn't read any of these people. Then I read them and I thought, well, I don't mind the comparison. They are very, very, very good writers. There's no question of it. They are terrific. And um, did it matter that I didn't read them earlier? No, it didn't. But they are, they are fine writers. But that's not my... my t I am an English writer. I am an English writer very who happens to have Jewishness in my yes. pocket. Yes. And that makes it very interesting to be an English writer who's, who's full of Jewish preconceptions, Jewish assumptions, Jewish anxieties, a love of um, Yiddish. There aren't, many, there aren't many English novelists who are able to throw, not that I've got Yiddish, but I've got bits of Yiddish. I love and I can Yiddish. And throw though. it around when I... When I, mean, I, I know only a few words, but I, I love Yiddish whenever it uh, comes. Sometimes up. a few words are all you need. You can use them in a... I've got away with very few Yiddish <laughs> words. You just... You, but you can use them differently, you can, because, the, because, it's, because the word is accompanied by your tone of voice, the pitch of your voice, the smile or the not smile in your eyes, what you're doing with your arm. I mean, one Yiddish word can go on a thousand errands. Uh, I wanted to ask you in this book, um, how, 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 how far you're playing it for laughs or, or exaggerating to, to make a better story. You, 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 you show yourself up. To some disadvantage in, in some ways. I mean, it, it, you, you give us a man who's, uh, well, pretty hard to be married to, 
Um, and uh, I, 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 mean, I wonder if you're sort of warding off the evil eye by saying, look, look how bad I was. Uh, yeah, I was a bit of a mamza, a bit of a schmendrick, eh? You've got it, yeah, there. not bad. <laughs> um, is, are you exaggerating your shortcomings or... Or is it No, I don't think I No, no. I mean, one of the reasons for, many, many reasons for doing this, partly when you get to a certain age, you do want to look back a bit now, um, and, it's a, and you want to tell some of the stories you've told before in a new way. I certainly wanted to do that. But I did want to, I did want to um, not make good or make amends or apologise or anything, you know, poncy like that. I did think it would be worth taking a look at some things that weren't very nice, having a, a long, hard look about at things at myself that I felt bad about as though you know as though somebody had told me when you're going to meet your maker next week get your lines ready I was getting my lines ready for for meeting my maker and he may have said Howard you exaggerate a bit I think he would say <laughs> yeah. Howard it's because <laughs> he's Jewish he's Howard Jew, he's Jewish yeah. he'd say Howard it sounded a bit like it sounded a little bit like Jonathan Sachs <laughs> who you know don't you yeah yes I used to know him well um he married. He married my wife and I, which was very nice. Um, and and God would say, "Well, you weren't as bad as that. But it's good. It's good that you admit that you were that you were bad. It's better that than being denied. But you weren't as bad as that. So c come on in, come on up, Howard, and come on in. All will be well." I did want to. I did want to square square some accounts, really, but not just. It was a. It, every time I write a book, it's a writerly challenge. For me, the writerly challenge comes before anything. becomes before the moral or the psychological. It's the writerly challenge. How would I write about that? What would it be like to try writing about this? What would I do with the exaggeration? I had a chapter in at the beginning, which I then took out because it was going on too long, about exaggeration and the importance of exaggeration. Maybe there's still some in there. I, th I remember saying somewhere, no Jew has ever told me I exaggerate. <laughs> you because also... Jews understand exaggeration is our way to the truth because everything is bigger than people think. When people accuse you of exaggerating, they mean you're making a small thing big. It's already big. It's already big. Yeah, you, uh, one of the uh, lines in the book is, a note to myself as a novelist you wrote, a Jew can be too cute about his Jewishness. Yeah. And that's, that's really what you're saying, isn't yes. it? You have, to, you have to make it, you have to make it uh, sing on the page. Yes, and you mustn't be pleased with yourself. And, um, and that's hard not to be. It's, a har it's harder it turns out to write a memoir than it is to write a novel. I found it harder because, I mean, I'm watching myself anyway when I write. I'm full of, I'm full of scruple and self-criticism when I write. I'll, every day um, I'll start again and look at what I wrote the day before and throw most of it away because I hate it. Writing the memoir, every day when I, I read what I'd written the day before, I threw all of it away. <laughs> Because of that, because you can be too cute, because you can be too self-referential. But how can you not be self-referential when it's a memoir? It was an intellect. It was a writerly exercise to write to write a memoir that, that I found the most intriguing thing about it. And what I did in the end was something I've never done before. Um, when you get to that point, when I, show, I don't show many people what I do before it goes out. I show my wife and my agent, um, and the feeling I got was people thought it was. A bit it needed thinning out a little bit editing and normally when i edit okay okay i'm i'm a willing editor i'll edit i listen to people i go back and make it whatever i do twice as good. <laughs> yes. this is the first time i've ever taken stuff out and i took masses out 
I took ma the book that I originally thought I was going to present was a hundred pages longer than this, and I think it's worked actually because I think people can get quicker looking at the reviews, which have been excellent so far. People can get quicker to what it is that I'm doing and where I am and my voice than when it was too laden. So I took a lot of I took a lot of self-punishing stuff out. My wife actually said there are too many men in here all of whom you think are marvellous and more handsome and more gifted and, and cleverer uh, than you. It gets tedious. That what I said, yeah, but I did feel that about a lot of men. So I thought, I looked again, I thought, she's quite right, get rid. So I got rid of a lot of stuff, not to make me look better, but just to give myself some space. And of course that does leave a little more room for, for, for the women. Uh, the, the, you have two wives in this book and you have a third now, but the book really only takes us up to... Uh, yes. You're becoming a yes. writer, and then you sort of deal with the the bits that have left uh, yes. Sam since yes. then. The fallout and 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 the the the, the two wives. And um, it reads like a novel. Uh, I, I I do not question for a minute that it's exactly the way it was, but it reads like a novel, and it's it's very entertaining. I I, I really enjoyed um, Roz, your your second wife. Yes. You say uh, of her one at one point. Ros frolicsome was not always to be distinguished from Ros annihilative, which she made me laugh out. But she was very vivid. And there's there's all there's that time when you were living in Wolverhampton, um, and you were driving up and down for years um, every weekend. These these were the really shocking years. The shocking years, my kind of thirties, really. Mm. Um, when we got together in my early thirties, um, she. she she, she just came to Wolverhampton. We'd met briefly in Australia, got on very, very badly. We ran into each <laughs> other in England again. She had nothing to do. I said, why don't you come to Wolverhampton? I, I, I distinctly hear, hear her say, Wolverhampton sounds a nice place. <laughs> <laughs> I said, wait till you see it. You, you didn't much like Wolverhampton, did you? I hated Wolverhampton. Yeah. I hated Wolverhampton. It was, to me, I'm ashamed of hating Wolverhampton. Because you were there years. I had that, my job at Wolverhampton lasted eight years. I mean, it, I was not able to get a job for many years. I, I could get no job whatsoever. And the person, my boss, a man called John Bolton, who I did originally write about at length, but then I cut out because that's maybe something for another time, was a lovely man who believed in my home a lot. He gave me this job and it was a job that, well, it gave me a living for many years. I didn't enjoy living in Wolverhampton. I didn't enjoy the... T I'm, I'm a, I'm a good lecturer and a terrible teacher, uh, and I just, I hated it. I hated the person-to-person the, the, the -person teaching, small group, to, anything less than 400, I can't deal with. Um, that shyness, that's... Yeah, absolutely it is, absolutely it is. And of course, you've got onto the paradox of that, that the shy are never more at home than when they've got a vast audience. Mm -hmm. It's, um, yes, absolutely the case. And I'm ashamed of myself. That's a word I use all the time in the book. But yes, it you is do. A, it is, I am, I am a creature of shame. I'm ashamed of myself for not having made a better job of teaching at Wolverhampton. I wanted to be partly because I'm many people I talk with at Wolverhampton, also Oxford and Cambridge people. If we were going to teach, we wanted to be teaching either in Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, or, or an Ivy League university. We didn't want to be teaching in the West Midlands at a polytechnic. The very word chilled my chilled my blood a polytechnic wasn't even a university wasn't even a minor provincial university it was below that was university now and i have an honorary they gave me a degree isn't that sweet of them they gave me a an honorary 
That's because they don't read your books. <laughs> they wouldn't have given you. <laughs> well, that's a good joke. But the truth is they did. Okay. And they said, someone put, whatever you said, you put us on the map. And nobody else has ever <laughs> or is going to do that. So I didn't make a very good job of that. And, and then when my Australian wife came along and started to live, decided she couldn't live more than a week in Wolverhampton once she'd cleaned up my... <laughs> and she had a point. She had a, a strong point. And wanted to, and fell in love with the Cornish village in Boscastle. Boscastle. I looked that up. It's 230 miles and you were driving up and down up and every down, week. Up and down. That must have been hell. Hell. But towards the end... Flocking down to try and get down before last orders. Yeah, yeah, get down for last orders or whatever else happened. And, and you wore the place. This is where you stop to get the fish and chips. Mm. Uh, and if you get there at the right time, you can have the fish and chips in a piece of paper on the driving side. And you can eat the fish, lovely fish and chips. Oakhampton, best fish and chips between. And it was exhausting. I was exhausted doing that. But I had this... It got me out as soon as I got... As soon as I could do my teaching... Shameful, really. And there were times when I'd reduced my teaching in Wolverhampton to two days. And then down I'd go to Boscastle. So I could have four and a half, five days in Boscastle. So I had a kind of double life. But I didn't like that all that much, really, <laughs> anyway. Because that was hers. Mm. It was her world. And because she was there so much time without me, they were her friends. And I felt something of a... You'd be surprised to hear me say this. I felt alien there. <laughs> Did you really? Not a word you expected to hear me use, is it? I felt an interloper, a stranger. And it's what I do. I do, I, I, I do alien. I, I have a you do PhD alien. in alien. So that's going to give us a, a final question. Where do you feel at home? Where do you feel um, that you are the right person for, for, for wherever you are? I'll never feel the right person, but I, am, I have reached in my old age... Uh, considerable contentedness, partly because I have, I must touch wood everywhere, a very, 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 very good good marriage, a terrific marriage, um, terrific, um, with everything that I thought a marriage couldn't be, um, but everything it turns out that a marriage can be. But I needed to be quite, oh, we were 60 when we got married. Mm -hmm. I was 64, my wife was 60. Um, she'd not been married before, I'd been married 40 times, um, I was worth knowing, finally, at 64-ish. I was worth being no bloke. My advice to any woman, don't go near a man until he's 64. And all the nonsense of being a young, the nonsense of being a young man, um, the unreliability and the bitterness and everything else had kind of worked its way out. And I'd produced a few books, so I couldn't feel so bad about myself. The book was still to come, but I'd produced some stuff to make me feel not too bad about myself. So now I'm, now I'm, now I'm good. I'm, I'm personally happy. Uh, I'm frightened about the danger, the very dangerous world we're living in, but we all, sh we all share that one. Um, I like being surrounded by my books and I like having books on the go and I'm finally there. But would I ever really say, that's it, I am now. I've got rid of all that sense of gaucherie and shame and embarrassment do you want me to go on an alienation and distance and melancholy and depression uh, no not all of it <laughs> well um that's okay i mean you could have just said right here right now and that would have been a shorter answer <laughs> you would you would have been very disappointed had i, I would have you. been very disappointed so i'm just going to say that the book is Mother's Boy uh, by Howard Jacobson. It's published by Jonathan Cape at £18.99 and I loved it to bits. Um, it's, it's just a delight all the way through. Howard, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for talking to me.
That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>